is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. More questions being raised about whether states and cities should get rid of the outdoor mask mandates. More people getting vaccinated now. Many experts say the risk of getting COVID outside, very low, especially if you're just going for a walk, you're exercising, you're far away from somebody on the sidewalk. We'll look into whether it makes sense to keep the mandates. Also, another variant found, this one in Texas, could be trouble. Are we reaching a point where people who aren't looking to get a vaccine just won't? Vaccine appointments going unfilled. And how will history remember this pandemic, or will it be forgotten? Let's start with the outdoor mask mandates. Dr. Paul Sachs, clinical director of the Infectious Disease Clinic at Brigham and Women's Hospital, also professor of medicine, Harvard Medical School. Rob Archer and I asked the doctor if it's okay to take those masks off outside. Well, I would argue that most of the time the answer is yes. And the answer is yes, a lot, a lot of because of what you just mentioned, mostly it's how safe it is outside. Remember, being outside exposes us to incredible ventilation. If you're carrying the virus, it's going to be immediately diluted in that ventilation, ventilation and really not pose much of a risk to anybody. I think this is especially true for people who are outside by themselves, just walking around. I mean, the kind of transient contact you have with someone when you pass someone in the street or walking across the street that's really not the kind of thing that transmits COVID-19. We've known that for some time. And I, as a result, I think masks outside are really kind of just more uh, uh, simpler to say wear a mask outside and wear a mask inside than to say wear a mask inside and you don't need to wear a mask outside. But that's really, the, I think, the message we should be giving. Yeah, and I feel like it's an easy carve out, right? If you're going to be in a huge crowd or something and you're still outside, well, then, yeah, then the, the authorities can say, hey, put the mask on at the ball game or whatever it is. But I think a lot of us have noticed, and you did the outside-inside thing, people have really started to notice this when it comes to, to dining. I mean, I am outside, or sometimes, you know, I can eat inside now, and my mask is off as soon as I'm at the table, but I get up to go to the bathroom, or I'm walking in around the restaurant, and then, oh, my mask has to be on, and people are going, really? For, for that yeah, uh, 10 seconds? Like, this seems very strange to me. It, what's even stranger is here in Massachusetts and Boston, where, you know, I've been, I've been to, to Los Angeles. I know people don't walk as much there, but, but you know, People will, will walk from the car wearing a mask and then they'll get to the restaurant and then take it <laughs> off in the restaurant. And, you know, that's exact opposite of the risk. We know that dining inside restaurants is actually fairly high risk for COVID-19. Walking around outside isn't. And yet people are wearing masks outside and not inside. It just doesn't make any sense. I think it's not so complicated. I mean, some people worry that if we give this mixed message, people won't be able to get it. But but I think that's not giving the public enough credit. I think they understand that the science of COVID-19 transmission has advanced. We understand more now than we did before. And this is a pretty straightforward message. Uh, speaking of uh, wearing masks outdoors and being around other people, if you're far from other people, I mean, I get that. It's like, you know, you're, you're taking a walk and you're, the nearest person is like 30 feet away. Yeah. Uh, what's the point of wearing a mask? But when is it a good idea to wear a mask outdoors? How close... Uh, should you be to somebody before you think, uh, even though I'm outdoors, that we should wear a mask? Yeah, well, you know, my I got, you know, kids who like to go to concerts, for example, and there are a lot of outdoor concerts. It seems to me that until we get more of the population vaccinated, um, being at a concert outside where you're like really face to face with someone a lot and you're screaming and shouting and singing, that would be absolutely a setting where I'd still recommend a mask. I also think that if you're meeting someone, for example, you know, who's who's you're having a conversation with them face to face conversation, you don't know their vaccine status, they don't know your vaccine status, it's still until case numbers are down further, it still makes sense to wear a mask. But most of the time, you know, for example, if you're on a hiking trail, uh, I don't really understand the the point of it. You know, people take their mask off during the hike, and then as they pass someone 
one and they quickly put it back on Raise and it up take and it down. off again. Yeah. It really is, is sort of nonsensical. There's going to be a whole bunch of little leaguers out this afternoon, right? Wearing masks <laughs> in the outfield. Does that does that make any sense? Well, it it you know, as long as there's a mask mandate, maybe to send the message that we should pay attention what the rules are, perhaps. But from a standpoint of preventing transmission of COVID-19, not so much. I guess, uh, you know, I, I side with you there. And you probably noticed that, that baseball players don't wear masks on the field. Yeah. Uh, I, I really do feel like this is something that we're getting to a point where enough public health officials, infectious disease specialists, uh, scientists are saying that outdoors is so much safer that, that we can sort of start stop dispensing with with we can dispense with the uh, with the mask mandate outside because eventually we have to be given some off ramps right oh, a way out of the pandemic agree. and this is like the first big one that can be lifted I completely agree I think if you wanted to sort of start seeing the faces of uh, of your neighbors again uh, what what's what is what's the safer location than doing but so what outside? if you don't <laughs> <laughs> stay covered up all right Dr Paul Sachs uh, clinical director of the infectious disease clinic Brigham and women Hospital, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. In Texas, they have found another variant. This one seems to be resistant to antibody treatments. It seems to be a combination of mutations that scientists have discovered in other parts of the world. One case so far, the new variant, so how worried should we be? Dr. Benjamin Newman, chief virologist, Texas A&M Global Health Research Complex, led the team that identified the new variant. Rob and I asked him if there's a worry that we can't stay ahead of all these variants that we hear about. I think that's a pretty legitimate worry, yeah. And this is one that I think is felt inside the scientific community. Part of what we're trying to do is to get lots more genome sequences. So to make sure that every case is something more than just a number going up by one, because there's a story, there's a person, there's a particular variant, there's a set of uh, pre-existing conditions, and all of this, we think, plays a role. And so this is part of that uh, effort. So tell me about yours, uh, the one that you found, one so far. What makes this different? We mentioned it, there seems to be some resistance uh, to neutralizing antibodies. What else do you know about it? Yeah, so we actually turned up three interesting variants there, uh, BV1, BV2, and BV3. But BV1 is the one I think is probably the most concerning. So what this actually looks like is it is basically born out of the UK variant. It has all of the markers you would expect from that one, which is also called B117, plus it has an additional marker. Now, the additional marker is not something that we've seen in this area before, but it's something that has popped up in other people's lab experiments. When they expose the virus to antibodies, this is how the virus changes, and then it becomes resistant to those antibodies. So we think this is probably something that, if it's the worst possible scenario, is going to spread like B117, but uh, have some resistance. But you never know when you're looking at a set of mutations if they're actually going to work together in that sort of additive way. And so that's the extra testing that's going to have to be done. But while that may take six months, we figured it was probably useful to share this information right now because there isn't a lot of some of the other exotic variants out there. And this is one that appears to be homegrown and a person may be much more likely to run into. Yeah, that you know that is that is kind of a frightening thing to consider. Is that well, we're getting people vaccinated, and uh, basically it's good for uh, stopping this uh, virus, the, the strains that that are can't fight off the vaccine. But then you've got the strains that are resistant to the vaccine. They're going to keep growing, and they're going to keep mutating and and getting stronger. And uh, I, I imagine that's going to make for some sleepless nights. 
Possibly, but it can also go the other way. So the virus comes in in a pretty good working order, and it can make changes, but usually when it makes changes to avoid the immune system or to sort of tweak some part of the process that it's doing, the virus is going to pay a penalty. And so we do not yet know how much of a penalty, if any, is actually associated with this. I think you see that with the uh, South African and Brazil variants. They have a mutation that makes them a little bit more difficult to vaccinate against, but these are not rising rapidly in the world. The one that's rising really rapidly is the UK variant right now. And so even though they're resistant, it looks as though they're probably also paying a price for that resistance. And if we can push the virus into a corner with stuff like vaccination, then we win anyway, because you get a weaker virus out, that's potentially easier to uh, stop. Yeah, you give it fewer places to run. And then there's there's also what we've heard before is, you know, with the vaccines, they are so effective that if you are, you know, knocking a bit out of them, you're still coming down from such a high place that that's still you're still ending up in a good place. It's like flu shot territory almost. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That is Dr. Benjamin Newman, chief virologist at Texas A&M Global Health Research Complex, uh, led the team that identified uh, this new variant in Texas. Doctor, thanks. It's open season on the vaccines, right? Everybody 16 plus can now get one. They just need to make an appointment and then show up where they're available. So if someone isn't actively trying to get a shot by now, will they ever? At this point, how do doctors convince the holdouts? Dr. Gregory Poland, director of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic, we asked him if there's a hitting a wall going on when it comes to that vaccine hesitancy. Uh, very likely, yes. Uh, the ironic thing is that everybody will become immune to this virus. It's just, will it be by vaccine or will it be after infection and its aftermath? So uh, how hard is that wall that we have to hit with uh, people not wanting to get a vaccine? Can we get everybody else vaccinated and that will be enough to stop the spread, even though we've got the, the uh, well, it's called some of them vaccine deniers don't want to take any vaccine at all. Yeah, in fact, I, I think it will be very hard to reach what we call herd immunity, if not impossible, in this country. People have rejected science-based uh, maneuvers such as mask wearing, distancing, restrictions. Uh, we're just now talking about, as you point out, uh, those who reject vaccines. So there's no options left, really. And as a result, it will needlessly prolong this pandemic and the number of people who lose their lives or are harmed by it. When you try and take yourself into into their shoes of people who are saying, I'm, I'm not going to get it at all, what do you end up getting to it at what point? Because sometimes it's, it's I'm young, I don't, I don't feel like I need it. Other times it's, you know, I don't like all these health mandates and health restrictions. But if you don't like the restrictions, isn't the vaccine the way out of having to do all this stuff? No question. I mean, I've been a vaccinologist for 40 years. We have never seen vaccines, first-generation vaccines, this effective and with this level of safety. So, I, you know, we do see a spectrum in regards to the hesitant. Sometimes it's a, uh, an educational uh, uh, issue or question. And, you know, I think people absolutely have the right to ask questions and to you know, challenge assumptions or what they're, they've been told. But when it extends to, I simply choose to deny the data, 
then you're in a situation where you you really no longer have civil discourse. You're you're in a situation, and and it's one that is a tense one in our culture. That is a very uh, self-centered me, if you will, rather than we culture. We get a vaccine, including on the medical side. We get a vaccine not only to protect ourselves, but to protect you, others. How do you get over that wall with somebody? Have you ever run, run across uh, somebody who was uh, hesitant to take a vaccine? And uh, were you able to convince them to get it? And how do you do that? Oh, yes, all the time. Um, it depends on the basis of their hesitancy. So, so I'm not talking about the anti-vacciners now, but people with legitimate questions who are hesitant, et cetera. It takes time takes trust building. Um, but, you know, what I often do is say, what area uh, are you most competent in in life, like a hobby or a career, whatever. And I'll go on the internet and I'll type something in uh, that, you know, because you can find misinformation and disinformation everywhere. And I'll say, well, right here, you know, you said that um, cars are safe, but here's a site that shows that it's devastatingly unsafe. And they'll look at it and they'll say, yeah, but look who's writing that. They don't even, oh, and the light goes on for them. This is not a credible source of information. You don't ask your grocery store clerk, gee, what operation do you think I should have for this medical problem? Why would you ask your grocery store clerk about any kind of vaccine information? For the younger set, what do you do for them? Because it's the idea of, okay, yes, this can get you back to normal, but a lot of people, at least, you know, in their 20s, as we know, have been functioning as quasi-normal anyway. They're the least likely to social distance. So virus has been moving through that crowd as of late more. They're the ones getting it, but they're not having the worst time with it. So what do you do in that case? Well, so two things here. I think one is to point out to them Let's just take universities. When there are outbreak, when students return to universities, the case load in the community increases dramatically. So again, it's a point of not just you, but those around you who you place at risk. So I think they don't know that. I think the second thing is they, they don't know the data. So what they think COVID 19 is from this past year is not what COVID-19 is now. Just look at Michigan or any of the 38 states that are now surging again after nine straight weeks of decline. It is in the 10 to 40-year-old age group. Let's just look at data from CDC. If we take a 5 to 17-year-old age group and we say, okay, that's baseline. What's the increased risk for people that are 18 to to 40? Well, the risk of developing it of COVID is about twofold higher. The risk of being hospitalized, about sixfold higher. The risk of dying, about 10 times higher. They can't tell you that data. They do not know that data. They're entering the most dangerous period of this entire pandemic because they're unprotected because they don't think they need to take precautions, and because the viruses circulating now are far different than the virus that circulated 
six, 12 months ago when they formed their opinion that they were not at risk. So this is a very dangerous period for the unvaccinated. Um, so we're not going to get to the point where we have to force vaccinations on people because I don't think we could ever do that in this country. But uh... well, I, I would I would say that's not really true. Um, we require that members of the military get a variety of vaccines. We require that people in the healthcare field uh, get vaccines. So, in fact, I'm advising a number of institutions, including a very large state university system. Uh, many businesses that are, in fact, planning to make it mandatory. Ultimately, when you really want to protect people, let's say in healthcare, you ultimately have to do that. You simply cannot overcome the continuing barrage of non-science-based objections, which is different than a moral objection. Dr. Gregory Poland, director of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. Doctor, thanks. Short break, and then will people talk about this pandemic a 100 years from now like we talk about the Spanish flu? Maybe not. Eventually, this is going to end, the pandemic, and then I guess we'll end the podcast, right? When it does, lots will be written about it. But will it be remembered long term? Let's look back to the 1918 flu. How much do you really know about it? We didn't learn too much about it in school unless you sought it out. Killed millions of people around the world. KYW's Mad Leon talks to Nancy Hill, museum manager at the Mutter Museum of College of Physicians in Philadelphia about the Spanish flu exhibit there and how that pandemic is connected to what we're dealing with today. That is something that we wanted to change with this exhibit. Part of why we wanted to do this is create a space where there was kind of a collective memory opportunity. And we do hope during the life of the exhibit to get one of those, uh, I don't you know if you've seen the blue and yellow historic markers around the city. Right. We are hoping to get one of those placed, uh, hopefully outside the Macy's. And there's kind of an interesting story there, I can tell if you're interested. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, to go back to kind of the start of the question, yeah, I think the only, there there are some public memorials in other cities, but they're quite small. And honestly, most of the memorials to the flu dead are are in cemeteries, their headstones or their kind of mass burial markers. And that's not the most approachable place for a lot of the public today. We've really changed our attitudes about cemeteries and burial a lot since, you know, the 19th century. And again, we were kind of just turning into the 20th century here. So it was also, you know, a, a very much a time of transition for kind of how Americans interacted with death, which, again, I think the pandemic had a hand in for sure. Um, to explain the Macy's situation. So at, in 1918 in Philadelphia, there was a committee that was they were meant to oversee the conditions in the war industries factories. Again, Philadelphia had a ton of war industry we actually had an extra quarter million people living in the city at the time just to work in the war industries factories. And, you know, they were supposed to be making sure that the quality of, you know, work safety was good. People were being paid fairly, things like that. But they didn't really have all that much to do. And so when the pandemic hit and these, you know, infrastructure of the city essentially failed, this committee saw that there was something that they could be doing that was a little bit of a better use of their time. And so the department store that was there at the time was a Wanamaker's, or, or at the, I think it was a Strawbridge's, actually. Either a Wanamaker or Strawbridge's, rather than the current Macy's that's there today. 
And they effectively were given a phone line at the department store that was like the flu helpline. So you could call the department store, say flu, and somebody would be there to answer the phone and hear what was going on. And they would try to send someone out to assess your needs. So if you were saying, hey, I'm in Kensington, there's a ton of corpses piling up on the street. We don't know what to do. Then they they could send somebody out to where you were to assess the situation and hopefully bring the resources there that were needed. That could be nurses. That could be food. Um, they also helped coordinate people who who owned cars could volunteer as ambulances. And so you were given a green flag on your car if you were a volunteer ambulance driver. Kind of, you know, we think today about funeral processions and you get the little magnet flag. It was kind of like that, but you had a green flag, and that meant you were an ambulance. So. This was kind of the center of the citizen effort to try and address the infrastructure failures that came about because of the pandemic all started, you know, where there was a phone line. So now let's look to today. Is it possible and it seems impossible now, but could we see the COVID-19 pandemic folded in the history the same way or do you think it will be different? Um, I, I think it will be different, and I hope it will be different. Uh, I think that science, science literacy is is different and better now. I still think there's lots of room for improvement in science literacy, but people understand what's going on a lot more. And I do think in terms of kind of cultural development, we are much more willing and able to talk about things that are stressful and traumatic. I mean, it's it's one of these things that sounds kind of silly, but I say it all the time. If, if Twitter had existed in 1918, my job would have been so much easier because there just isn't material culture and there's not a ton of oral histories from the time. And so we, we work to collect some family histories, but most of the people who lived through 1918 are dead. Well, all of them really, but, you know, trying to find, find these like first person accounts and find these more personal and emotional artifacts has been really difficult again, because of the war and because people didn't want to talk about it or think about it. You know, these would be stories that maybe someone heard their grandmother tell one time sort of thing. Whereas now, you know, people are venting their daily frustrations, their experiences with getting vaccinated, their experiences with conflict relating to mass compliance all of that is being recorded on social media, which I think will serve as an excellent, you know, look back for future historians, but also people are processing what is happening in a way that was not going on in 1918. People are much more willing to be vulnerable and communicate the emotional impact than I think we were likely to see in 1918. How so much- I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I, I would be surprised if this got kind of swept out and overshadowed by historical events in the way that 1918 did. I think we all are able to recognize how much COVID has, uh, how, how, co- how much COVID is interlaced with all of, I mean, we, we've certainly had historical events going on, but we all recognize that COVID is part of those situations. How much do you think that idea of a universal trauma where people don't want to focus on it going forward. Like we've got all the things that happen in the moment, kind of the, the TikTok of the pandemic, if you will, I don't mean the <laughs> app, I mean the actual, like, you know, the, the timeline for almost every time. individual, but how much do you think? Cause I, I personally think we might be surprised 
how quickly people compartmentalize this and put it in the rearview mirror. I don't mean historians, but I just mean the the everyday people. Do you think that could uh, that could lead to it feeling further away as we get farther away from it? I think so. Uh, I hope I hope not in a lot of ways, but I, I definitely can see the appeal of wanting to be like, it's over. I'm closing this chapter and I'm putting it behind me. But what I what I hope people recognize is that this, it's not going to be just over one day. Right. You know, we this is going to be a slow transition out of out of pandemic mode. And honestly, it's looking like it's not it's going to go from being pandemic to endemic. So it's not going to go away. It's not going to be eradicated like smallpox. It's just going to be something we learn to deal with, right? So I hope that people don't completely forget about it because there's a lot of lessons to be learned about public health and, uh, you know, crises management that I hope we take into the future with us. But I can definitely see the appeal. You know, you get that second shot and you say nothing can do anything to me and you pretend it didn't happen. I would discourage people from doing that because you can still transmit the virus to other folks, you know, br- spread it around as someone who's, who's uh, vaccinated. But, you know, I, I think it really will depend on the person and how they choose to, to deal with this. I do think a lot of the younger generations who've grown up a little bit more, you know, submerged in kind of therapy talk and knowing, <laughs> knowing how to process these things in a way that, feels a little bit more transparent and productive. I think that, that those younger kids will probably keep it in the forefront, but a lot of older folks who have already been through a lot and maybe don't have those same emotional coping tools will just want to put it behind them and forget about it. We have talked about how dogs, cats, gorillas can get COVID. Now otters are getting infected. Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta announcing seven Asian small clawed otters came down with the virus. Tested after showing mild respiratory symptoms. They were sneezing. They had runny noses, the little tiny otter noses. They were a bit lethargic. They were coughing. The sick otters are older and now being cared for by animal health care experts outside of their exhibit. We are hoping they will be okay. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.